Section 21 of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The South Pole by Roland Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 21, Volume 2, Chapter 10. The Start for the Pole, Part 1. At last we got away on October the 19th. The weather for the past few days had not been altogether reliable, now windy, now calm, now snowing, now clear, regular spring weather, in other words. That day it continued and settled, it was misty and thick in the morning, and did not promise well for the day, but by 9.30 there was a light breeze from the east, and at the same time it cleared. There was no need for a prolonged inquiry into the sentiments of the party. What do you think? Shall we start? Yes, of course. Let's be jogging on. There was only one opinion about it. Our coursers were harnessed in a jiffy, and with a little nod, as much as to say, see you tomorrow, we were off. I don't believe Lindstrom even came out of doors to see us start. Such an everyday affair. What's the use of making a fuss about it? There were five of us, Hansen, Wisting, Hassel, Bjaland, and myself. We had four sledges, with thirteen dogs to each. At the start our sledges were very light, as we were only taking supplies for the trip to eighty degrees south, where all our cases were waiting for us. We could therefore sit on the sledges and flourish our whips with a jaunty air. I sat astride on Wisting's sledge, and anyone who had seen us would not doubt have thought a polar journey looked very inviting. Down on the sea ice stood Prestrud with a cinematograph, turning the crank as fast as he could go, as we went past. When we came up onto the barrier on the other side, he was there again, turning incessantly. The last thing I saw as we went over the top of the ridge and everything familiar disappeared was a cinematograph. It was coming inland at full speed. I had been engaged in looking out ahead, and turned round suddenly to throw a last glance in the direction of the spot that to us stood for all that was beautiful on earth, when I caught sight of, what do you think? A cinematograph. He can't be taking anything but air now, can he? Hardly that. The cinematograph vanished below the horizon. The going was excellent, but the atmosphere became thicker as we went inland. For the first twelve miles, from the edge of the barrier, I had been sitting with Hassel, but, seeing that Wisting's dogs could manage two on the sledge better than the others, I moved. Hansen drove first. He had to steer by compass alone, as the weather had got thicker. After him came Bjarland, then Hassel, and finally Wisting, and I. We had just gone up a little slope, when we saw that it dropped rather steeply on the other side. The descent could not be more than twenty yards long. I sat with my back to the dogs, looking aft, and was enjoying the brisk drive. Then suddenly the surface by the side of the sledge dropped perpendicularly, and showed a yawning black abyss, large enough to have swallowed us all and a little more. A few inches more to one side, and we should have taken no part in the polar journey. We guessed from this broken surface that we had come too far to the east, and altered our course more westerly. When we had reached safer ground, 
I took the opportunity of putting on my ski and driving so, in this way the weight was more distributed. Before very long it cleared a little, and we saw one of our mark flags straight ahead. We went up to it. Many memories clung to the spot, cold and slaughter of dogs. It was there we had killed the three puppies on the last trip. We had then covered seventeen miles, and we camped, well pleased with the first day of our long journey. My belief that, with all in one tent, we should manage our camping and preparations much better than before was fully justified. The tent went up as though it arose out of the ground, and everything was done as though we had had long practice. We found we had ample room in the tent, and our arrangements worked splendidly the whole time. They were as follows. As soon as we halted, all took a hand at the tent. The pegs in the valance of the tent were driven in, and Wisting crept inside and planted the pole, while the rest of us stretched the guy ropes. When this was done, I went in, and all the things that were to go inside were handed in to me, sleeping bags, kit bags, cookers, provisions. Everything was put in its place, the primus lighted, and the cooker filled with snow. Meanwhile the others fed their dogs and let them loose. Instead of the guard, we shoveled loose snow round the tent. This proved to be sufficient protection. The dogs respected it. The bindings were taken off all our ski, and either stowed with other loose articles in a provision case, or hung up together with the harness on the top of the ski, which were lashed upright to the front of the sledge. The tent proved excellent in every way. The dark color subdued the light and made it agreeable. Neptune, a fine dog, was let loose when we had come six miles over the plain. He was so fat that he could not keep up. We felt certain that he would follow us, but he did not appear. We then supposed that he had turned back and made for the flesh pots, but strangely enough he did not do that either. He never arrived at the station. It is quite a mystery what became of him. Rota, another fine animal, was also set free. She was not fit for the journey, and she afterwards arrived at home. Ulrich began by having a ride on the sledge. He picked up later. Bjorn went limping after the sledge. Peary was incapacitated. He was let loose and followed for a time, but then disappeared. When the eastern party afterwards visited the depot in 80 degrees south, they found him there in good condition. He was shy at first, but by degrees let them come near him and put the harness on. He did very good service after that. Uranus and Fuchs were out of condition. This was pretty bad for the first day, but the others were all worth their weight in gold. During the night it blew a gale from the east, but it moderated in the morning, so that we got away at 10 a.m. The weather did not hold for long. The wind came again with renewed force for the same quarter, with thick driving snow. However, we went along well and passed flag after flag. After going nineteen and a quarter miles, we came to a snow beacon that had been erected at the beginning of April, and had stood for seven months. It was still quite good and solid. This gave us a good deal to think about, so we could depend upon these beacons, they would not fall down. From the experience thus gained, we afterwards erected the whole of our extensive system of beacons on the way south. The wind went to the southeast during the day. It blew, but luckily it had stopped snowing. 
the temperature was minus eleven and a half degree Fahrenheit, and bitter enough against the wind. When we stopped in the evening and set our tent, we had just found our tracks from the last trip. They were sharp and clear, though six weeks old. We were glad to find them, as we had seen no flag for some time, and were beginning to get near the ugly trap, forty-six and a half miles from the house, that had been found on the last depot journey, so we had to be careful. The next day, the 21st, brought very thick weather, a strong breeze from the southeast with thick driving snow. It would not have been a day for crossing the trap if we had not found our old tracks. It was true that we could not see them far, but we could still see the direction they took. So as to be quite safe, I now set our course northeast by east. Two points east was the original course. And compared with our old tracks, this looked right, as the new course was considerably more easterly than the direction of the tracks. One last glance over the camping ground to see whether anything was forgotten, and then into the blizzard. It was really wild weather, snowing from above and drifting from below, so that one was quite blinded. We could not see far. Very often we on the last sledge had difficulty in seeing the first. Bjarland was next in front of us. For a long time we had been going markedly downhill, and this was not in accordance with our reckoning, but in that weather one could not make much of a reckoning. We had several times passed over crevices, but none of any size. Suddenly we saw Bjarland's sledge sink over. He jumped off and seized the trace. The sledge lay on its side for a few seconds, then began to sink more and more, and finally disappeared altogether. Bjaland had got a good purchase in the snow, and the dogs lay down and dug their claws in. The sledge sunk more and more. All this happened in a few moments. No, I can't hold it any longer. We, Wisting and I, had just come up. He was holding on convulsively, and resisting with all his force, but it was no use. Inch by inch the sledge sunk deeper. The dogs, too, seemed to understand the gravity of the situation. Stretched out in the snow, they dug their claws in, and resisted with all their strength. But still, inch by inch, slowly and surely, it went down into the abyss. Bjarland was right enough when he said he couldn't hold on any longer. A few seconds more, and his sledge and thirteen dogs would never have seen the light of day again. Help came at the last moment. Hansen and Hassel who were a little in advance when it happened, had snatched an alpine rope from a sledge and came to his assistance. They made the rope fast to the trace, and two of us, Bjarland and I, were now able, by getting a good purchase, to hold the sledge suspended. First the dogs were taken out. Then Hassel's sledge was drawn back and placed across the narrowest part of the crevasse, where we could see that the edges were solid. Then by our combined efforts the sledge, which was dangling far below, was hoisted up as far as we could get it, and made fast to Hassel's sledge by the dog's traces. Now we could slack off and let go. One sledge hung securely enough by the other. We could breathe a little more freely. The next thing to be done was to get the sledge right, up, and before we could manage that, it had to be unloaded. A man would have to go down on the rope, cast off the lashings of the cases and attach them again for drawing up. They all wanted this job, but Wisting had it. He fastened the alpine rope around his body and went down. 
Bialand and I took up our former positions, and acted as anchors. Meanwhile, Wisting reported what he saw down below. The case with the cooker was hanging by its last thread. It was secured, and again saw the light of day. Hassel and Hansen attended to the hauling up of the cases, as Wisting had them ready. These two fellows moved about on the brink of the chasm with a coolness that I regarded at first with approving eyes. I admire courage and contempt of danger, but the length to which they carried it at last was too much of a good thing. They were simply playing hide-and-seek with fate. Wisting's information from below, that the cornice they were standing on was only a few inches thick, did not seem to have the slightest effect on them. On the contrary, they seemed to stand on them more securely. "'We've been lucky,' said Wisting. "'This is the only place where the crevice is narrow enough to put a sledge across. "'If he had gone a little more to the left,' Hansen looked eagerly in that direction, "'none of us would have escaped. "'There is no surface there, only a crust as thin as paper. "'It doesn't look very inviting down below, either. "'Immense spikes of ice sticking up everywhere.' which would spit you before you go very far down. This description was not attractive. It was well we had found such a good place. Meanwhile, Wisting had finished his work and was hauled up. When asked whether he was not glad to be on the surface again, he answered with a smile that it was nice and warm down there. We then hauled the sledge up, and for the time being all was well. But, said Hassel, we must be careful going along here, because I was just on the point of going in when Hassan and I were bringing up the sledge. He smiled as though at a happy memory. Hassel had seen that it was best to be careful. There was no need to look for crevices. There was literally nothing else to be seen. There could be no question of going farther into the trap, for we had long ago come to the conclusion that, in spite of our precautions, we had arrived at this ugly place. We should have to look about for a place for the tent, but that was easier said than done. There was no possibility of finding a place large enough for both the tent and the guy ropes. The tent was set up on a small, apparently solid spot, and the guy stretched across crevices in all directions. We were beginning to be quite familiar with the place. That crevice ran there and there, and it had a side fissure that went so and so just like schoolboys learning a lesson. Meanwhile, we had brought all our things as far as possible into a place of safety. The dogs lay harnessed to reduce the risk of losing them. Wisting was just going over to his sledge. He had gone the same way several times before, when suddenly I saw nothing but his head, shoulders and arms above the snow. He had fallen through, but saved himself by stretching his arms out as he fell. The crevice was bottomless like the rest. We went into the tent and cooked lobscous. Leaving the weather to take care of itself, we made ourselves as comfortable as we could. It was then one o'clock in the afternoon. The wind had fallen considerably since we came in, and before we knew what was happening, it was perfectly calm. It began to brighten a little about three, and we went out to look at it. The weather was evidently improving, and on the northern horizon there was a sign of blue sky. On the south it was thick. Far off, in the densest part of the mist, we could vaguely see the outline of a dome-like elevation, and Wisting and Hansen went off to examine it. 
The dome turned out to be one of the small haycock formations that we had seen before in this district. They struck at it with their poles, and just as they expected, it was hollow, and revealed the darkest abyss. Hansen was positively chuckling with delight when he told us about it. Hassel sent him an envious glance. By 4 p.m. it cleared, and a small reconnoitring party composed of three started to find a way out of this. I was one of the three, so we had a long alpine rope between us. I don't like tumbling in, if I can avoid it by such simple means. We set out to the east, the directions that had brought us out of the same broken ground before, and we had not gone more than a few paces when we were quite out of it. It was now clear enough to look about us. Our tent stood at the north-eastern corner of a tract that was full of hummocks. We could decide beyond a doubt that this was the dreaded trap. We continued a little way to the east until we saw our course clearly, and then returned to camp. We did not waste much time in getting things ready and leaving the place. It was genuine relief to find ourselves once more on good ground, and we resumed our journey southward at a brisk pace. That we were not quite out of the dangerous zone was shown by a number of small hummocks to the south of us. They extended across our course at right angles. We could also see from some long but narrow crevices we crossed that we must keep a good lookout. When we came into the vicinity of the line of hummocks that lay in our course, we stopped and discussed our prospects. We shall save a lot of time by going straight on through here instead of going round, said Hansen. I had to admit this, but on the other hand the risk was much greater. Oh, let's try it, he went on. If we can't do it, we can't. I was weak, and allowed myself to be persuaded, and away we went among the haycocks. I could see how Hansen was enjoying himself. This was just what he wanted. He went faster and faster. Curiously enough, we passed several of these formations without noticing anything, and began to hope that we should get through. Then suddenly Hansen's three leading dogs disappeared, and the others stopped abruptly. He got them hauled up with much trouble and came over. We others who were following crossed without accident, but our further progress seemed doubtful, for after a few more paces the same three dogs fell in again. We were now in exactly the same kind of place as before. Crevices ran in every direction like a broken pane of glass. I had had enough, and would take no more part in this death ride. I announced decisively, that we must turn back, follow our tracks, and got round it all. Hansen looked quite disappointed. Well, he said, but we shall be over it directly. I dare say we shall, I replied, but we must go back first. This was evidently hard on him. There was one formation in particular that attracted him, and he wanted to try his strength with, with it. It was a pressure mass that, as far as appearance went, might just as well have been formed out in the drift ice. It looked as if it was formed of four huge lumps of ice, raised on end against each other. We knew what it contained without examination, a yawning chasm. Hansen cast a last regretful glance upon it, and then turned back. We could now see all our surroundings clearly. This place lay, as we had remarked before, in a hollow. We followed it round, and came up the rise on the south without accident. Here we caught sight of one of our flags. 
it stood to the east of us, and thus confirmed our suspicion that we had been going too far to the west. We had one more contact with the broken ground, having to cross some crevices and pass a big hole, but then it was done, and we could once more rejoice in having solid ice beneath us. Hansen, however, was not satisfied till he had been to look into the hole. In the evening we reached the two snow huts we had built on the last trip, and we camped there, twenty-six miles from the depot. The huts were drifted up with snow, so we left them in peace, and as the weather was now so mild and fine, we preferred the tent. It had been an eventful day, and we had reason to be satisfied that we had come off so easily. The going had been good, and it had all gone like a game. When we started the next morning, it was overcast and thick, and before we had gone very far, we were in the midst of a southwester, with snow so thick that we could hardly see ten sledge lengths ahead of us. We had intended to reach the depot that day, but if this continued, it was more than doubtful whether we should find it. Meanwhile, we put on the pace. It was a long way on, so there was no danger of driving past it. During this, while it had remained clear in the zenith, and we had been hoping that the wind and snow would cease. But we had no such luck. It increased rather than dropped. Our best sledge meter, one we knew we could depend on, was on Wisting's sledge. Therefore, he had to check the distance. At 1.30 p.m., he turned round to me and pointed out that we had gone the exact distance. I called out to Hansen to use his eyes well. Then, at that very moment, the depot showed up a few sledge lengths to the left of us, looking like a regular palace of snow in the thick air. This was a good test both for the sledge meter and the compass. We drove up to it and halted. There were three important points to be picked up on our way south, and one of them was found. We were all glad and in good spirits. The ninety-nine miles from Framheim to this point had been covered in four marches, and we could now rest our dogs and give them as much seal's flesh as they were capable of eating. Thus far the trip had been a good one for the animals. With one exception, they were all in the best condition. This exception was Uranus. We had never been able to get any fat on his bones. He remained thin and scraggy and awaited his death at the depot a little later, in 82 degrees south. If Uranus was lanky to look at, the same could not be said of Jala, poor beast. In spite of her condition, she struggled to keep up. She did her utmost, but unless her dimensions were reduced before we left 82 degrees south, she would have to accompany Uranus to another world. The cases of provisions and outfits that we had left here on the last trip were almost entirely snowed under, but it did not take long to dig them out. The first thing to be done was to cut up the seals for the dogs. These grand pieces of meat, with the blubber attached, did not have to be thrown at the dogs. They just helped themselves as long as there was any meat cut up, and when that was finished they did not hesitate to attack the joint. It was a pleasure to see them as they lay all over the place, enjoying their food. It was all so delightfully calm and peaceful to begin with. They were all hungry, and thought of nothing but satisfying their immediate cravings. But when this was done, there was an end of the truce. Although Hai had only half finished his share, he must needs go up to wrap and take away the piece he was eating. 
Of course, this could not happen without a great row, which resulted in the appearance of Hansen. Then Hai made himself scarce. He was a fine dog, but fearfully obstinate. If he had once taken a thing into his head, it was not easy to make him give it up. On one of our depot journeys, it happened that I was feeding Hansen's dogs. Hai had made short work of his pemmican, and looked round for more. Ah, there was Rupp enjoying his. That would just do for him. In a flush, Hai was upon him, forced him to give up his dinner, and was about to convert it to his own use. Meanwhile, I had witnessed the whole scene, and before Hai knew anything about it, I was upon him in turn. I hit him over the nose with the whip-handle, and tried to take the pemmican from him. But it was not so easy. Neither of us would give in, and soon we were both rolling over and over in the snow, struggling for the mastery. I came off victorious after a pretty hot fight, and Rap got his dinner again. Any other dog would have dropped it at once, and being hit over the nose, but not high. It was a treat to get into the tent. The day had been a bitter one. During the night the wind went round to the north, and all the snow that had been blown northward by the wind of the previous day had nothing to do but to come back again. The road was free, and it made the utmost use of its opportunity. Nothing could be seen for driving snow when we turned out next morning. We could only stay where we were, and console ourselves with the thought that it made no difference, as it had been decided that we were to remain here two days. But staying in a tent all day is never very amusing, especially when one is compelled to keep to one's sleeping bag the whole time. You soon get tired of talking, and you can't write all day long either. Eating is a good way of passing the time, if you can afford it, and so is reading, if you have anything to read. But as the menu is limited, and the library as a rule somewhat deficient on a sledging trip, these two expedients fall to the ground. There is, however, one form of entertainment that may be indulged in under these circumstances without scruple, and that is a good nap. Happy is the man who can sleep the clock round on days like these. But that is a gift that is not vouchsafed to all, and those who have it will not own up to it. I have heard men snore till I was really afraid they would choke, but as for acknowledging that they had been asleep, never. Some of them even have the coolness to assert that they suffer from sleeplessness, but it was not so bad as that with any of us. In the course of the day the wind dropped, and we went out to do some work. We transferred the old depot to the new one. We now had here three complete sledge loads, for which there would be little use, and which, therefore, were left behind. The eastern party availed themselves of part of these supplies on their journey, but not much. This depot is a fairly large one, and might come in useful if anyone should think of exploring the region from King Edward Land southward. As things were, we had no need of it. At the same time, the sledges were packed, and when evening came, everything was ready for our departure. There had really been no hurry about this, as we were going to stay here on the following day as well. But one soon learns in these regions that it is best to take advantage of good weather when you have it. You never know how long it will last. There was, however, nothing to be said about the days that followed. We could doze and doze as much as we liked. The work went on regularly, nevertheless. The dogs knaved and graved, storing up strength with every hour that went by. We will now take a trip out to our loaded sledges, and see what they contain. 
Hansen stands first, bow to the south. Behind it come Wistings, Bjarlands, and Hassels. They all look pretty much alike, and as regards provisions their loads are precisely similar. Case number one contains about 5,300 biscuits and weighs 111 pounds. Case number two, 112 rations of dog's pemmican, 11 bags of dried milk, chocolate, and biscuits. Total gross weight, 177 pounds. Case number three, 124 rations of dog's pemmican, 10 bags of dried milk and biscuits. Gross weight, 161 pounds. Case number four, 39 rations of dog's pemmican, 86 rations of men's pemmican, 9 bags of dried milk and biscuits. Gross weight, 165 pounds. Case number five, 96 rations of dog's pemmican, weight 122 pounds. Total net weight of provisions per sledge, 668 pounds. With the outfit and the weight of the sledge itself, the total came to pretty nearly 880 pounds. Hansen's sledge differed from the others, in that it had aluminium fittings instead of steel and no sledge meter, as it had to be free from iron on account of the steering compass he carried. Each of the other three sledges had a sledge meter and compass. We were thus equipped with three sledge meters and four compasses. The instruments we carried were two sextants and three artificial horizons, two glass and one mercury, a hypsometer for measuring heights, and one aneroid. For meteorological observations, four thermometers. Also two pairs of binoculars. We took a little traveling case of medicines from Burroughs, Welcome and Co., our surgical instruments were not many, a dental forceps and a beard clipper. Our sewing outfit was extensive. We carried a small, very light tent in reserve. It would have to be used if any of us were obliged to turn back. We also carried two Primus lamps. Of paraffin we had a good supply, twenty-two and a half gallons divided among three sledges. We kept it in the usual cans, but they proved too weak. Not that we lost any paraffin, but Bialen had to be constantly soldiering to keep them tight. We had a good soldiering outfit. Every man carried his own personal bag, in which he kept reserve clothing, diaries, and observation books. We took a quantity of loose straps for spare ski bindings. We had double sleeping bags for the first part of the time, that is to say, an inner and an outer one. There were five watches among us, of which three were chronometer watches. We had decided to cover the distance between 18th degree and 82nd degree south in daily marches of 17 miles. We could easily have done twice this, but as it was more important to arrive than to show great speed, we limited the distance. Besides which, here between the depots, we had sufficient food to allow us to take our time. We were interested in seeing how the dogs would manage the loaded sledges. We expected them to do well, but not so well as they did. On October 25th, we left 80 degrees south with a light northwesterly breeze, clear and mild. I was now to take up my position in advance of the sledges and placed myself a few paces in front of Hansen's, with my ski pointing in the right direction. A last look behind me, already, and away I went. I thought, no, I didn't have time to think. Before I knew anything about it, I was sent flying by the dogs. In the confusion that ensued, they stopped, luckily, so that I escaped without damage, as far as that went. To tell the truth, I was angry, 
but as I had sense enough to see that the situation, already sufficiently comic, would be doubly ridiculous if I allowed my annoyance to show itself, I wisely kept quiet. And after all, whose fault it was? I was really the only one to blame. Why in the world had I not got away faster? I now changed my plan entirely. There is nothing to be ashamed of in that, I hope, and fell in with the awkward squad. There I was more successful. Already? Go! And go they did. First Hansen went off like a meteor. Close behind him came Wisting, and then Bialen and Hassel. They all had ski on, and were driving with a line. I had made up my mind to follow in the rear, as I thought the dogs would not keep this up for long, but I soon had enough of it. We did the first six and a quarter miles in an hour. I thought that would do for me, so I went up to Wisting, made a rope fast to his sledge, and there I stood till we reached 85 degrees 5 seconds south, 340 miles. Yes, that was a pleasant surprise. We had never dreamed of anything of the sort, driving on ski to the pole. Thanks to Hansen's brilliant talents as a dog driver, we could easily do this. He had his dogs well in hand, and they knew their master. They knew that the moment they failed to do their duty, they would be pulled up, and a hiding all round would follow. Of course, as always happens, nature occasionally got the better of discipline, but the confirmation that resulted checked any repetition of such conduct for a long while. The day's march was soon completed in this way, and we camped early. End of section 21